Today's episode of Talking with TK is presented by The Cabinet House. For affordable excellence in kitchens, bathrooms and wardrobes, head over to www.thecabinethouse.com.au. Guys, welcome back to Talking with TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Episode 64 of the podcast. We're going to be hitting you with two episodes this week, and we've got another legend of Australian sport in none other than Steve Monaghetti. You know, Steve's an absolute household name. If you're into your wrong distance running, you're into your jogging, I'm sure you know exactly who Steve is. An absolute champ at things like the city to surf. His record speaks for itself. He went to four Olympic Games and also Commonwealth Games. His Commonwealth record is pretty astonishing, winning a gold, silver, and two bronze. So I'm really glad to bring him on the show. He was someone when I was growing up who was absolutely dominating in the track and field world here in Australia and also overseas. So it's going to be really interesting to get some real insights into his running career, how it all came together, and how he continued to build it because his career was still still so very long he's still doing a little bit of running still today so it is really you know it's a huge thing for especially longevity in a sport such as long distance running apart from that we'll be getting a few high performance tips one of the questions i do bring to him is exactly how we get good at doing a city to surf here in sydney so Look out for that in a couple of minutes. But before I get him on, just a big shout out to everyone tuning in today. Really appreciate you joining me today. And if it's your first time, you can, well, thank you for joining us. And you can subscribe for free a few different ways on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or all the shows are online, the show notes, the episode guides, and also a place where you can actually play all the episodes are all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. Like I said, each episode has got its own page on there as well. So you'll be able to see exactly the timestamps, the players, the social media links and online links for all the awesome guests I've had on the show. If you want to connect with me, please find me on Twitter, on Facebook, Facebook at Talking With TK or Instagram, you can find me at Tristan Nell. But Without further ado, let's get straight to it, and I introduce the legend, Steve Monaghetti. Okay, guys, my special guest is Steve Monaghetti. Steve is a legendary Australian long-distance runner. He represented Australia at four Olympic and also four Commonwealth Games. It includes four... Four Commonwealth medals, which includes one gold, one silver, and two bronze medals. I welcome the man, Steve Monaghetti. Steve, welcome to the show, buddy. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro. You've been kind to me. No, I don't think I've been kind, mate. It's When I was actually writing it, it's quite the achievement to go to... Some people don't know. I've never been to one Olympic Games, mate. You've been to four and <laughs> four Commonwealth Games. But where we want to start is, I know that you've just been announced for the third time as the chief demission of the Commonwealth Games next year in Gold Coast. So I just really wanted to know what that role actually entails. It's a good question. I get asked regularly. It's, there's no, it's not really a job description. I mean, it, technically, it's French for chief of the mission. So I'm kind of the, uh, the boss. The buck stops with me. So I'm responsible for the Australian team. So I don't actually, a lot of people, because it's a home games next year, people kind of go, oh, great, Mono, will you be able to get me some tickets? No, no, no. I just look after the Australian team. I've got nothing to do with the organisation per se. So it's exciting for us at the moment. You know, we've got our management team in place, but the exciting thing for us is we're starting to now announce teams. So, you know, we've had the triathlon team, the squash team, lawn bowls. So those team announcements are great because... They're the athletes who will be, you know, donning the green and gold, who mm. will be doing the business, and we just put the environment in place to make sure that they can have a good experience and perform well. So effectively, that's my job. If they're happy, in a good place, and have a good experience, then my job's done. Yeah, are you going to be doing like a little bit of mentoring to, for a few athletes as well? 
Well, normally, to be honest, I don't get a lot of direct access with the athletes. I might go out and see a few team trainings and things, but we I, I don't want to interfere. I let them, you know, if obviously if they come to me and ask for some advice and stuff, I will, having, you know, there's nothing I haven't done at Commonwealth Games, having been involved, I think, for the last nine. But we, I, my main interaction is with the team management. So each sport would have a team manager, so we interact with them, make sure things are going well. So it's really just for us more of a management role. We don't want to interfere with their coaching, their day-to-day preparation. You know, the... Just the connection that you've got with the Commonwealth Games, because you've been so successful there. You know, you've got every games that you went to, you got a medal. Mm-hmm. Plus now, in your role now, it's just that connection. Do you feel something just aligned with Commonwealth Games? Well, to be honest, and historically, I'm not sure if you would know the story, but I just made the qualifying time. So that was the first team I ever went away on in 86 and I only just got under the 10k qualifying time and as it turns out about three months before my coach Chris Wardlaw looked at the team and saw there was a vacancy in the men's marathon and asked Athletics Australia if they would let me run in the marathon and you know chatted to me and said look it's a great opportunity and I'll see what I can do to get you in the team got me in the team and as it turns out you know I was fifth in the 10k and never having ran the distance before ran the marathon and won a bronze medal. So the opportunity that the Commonwealth Games gave to me, I'm forever grateful. And that started my international career and it allowed me to be, a, you know, an international athlete for 15 years. So I feel some debt of gratitude to the Commonwealth Games. So mm. I've been asked, you know, when I retired in 2000, the, the next Commonwealth Games in Manchester and Perry Crosswhite, who was the CEO, said, look, would you like to come over and be an athlete liaison officer for the team? I said, you want me to help our Commonwealth Games? I owe you guys. Just ask me what you want me to do. And then Mayor for Melbourne, you know, and that, interestingly, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm Ballarat, really. I'm not really Melbourne, but the government, I remember them asking if I'd do it and said, yeah, sure, sounds fantastic. It's going to be a great Games, great way to be involved, looking after the um the village, so that was a terrific role. That was looking after the whole village, and not just the Australian team. And then Perry asked me um, if I would actually take on the chef's role. And I, I never in my wildest dreams, to, you imagine the journey, Tristan, of being the last person picked, this quiet kid from Ballarat in 1986, to yeah. somehow in 2010 being the, the first person picked, the leader, you know, the boss of the team. What an incredible journey, you know. You could never predict. There's there's things in life that happen that you just could never predict. You just do little things along the way and suddenly that's where I ended up. So it's just been a very fulfilling for me to be in that role and do one more time, Gold Coast, and then I'll hang up my hat right off into the distance. Done. Hey, Steve, you know the marathon. What's the actual distance on one of those races? So it's 42.195 kilometres, or in the old terms, and historically it was the first marathon at the Olympics in, 19, in 1896 wasn't actually that far, but then the next one in London, the King wanted the marathon to start at Windsor Castle and then finish in at work, I think, at Buckingham Palace or somewhere, and fortunately they measured it, and it was 26 miles, 385 yards, and that converts to 42 0.195 kilometers so it is an exact distance and every marathon to have uh, uh, um, genuine status needs to be measured at that distance wow so obviously you were training for the 10,000 meters and then obviously you got thrust into an event that was what four times the distance mm-hmm. how did you adjust in time to actually be as competitive as you were and even win a medal yeah, well, I was in the only thing we did differently, and that's obviously that was the first question I said to my coach. You know, I'm a 10k runner. How can I be expected to run the marathon? He said, "We're well, going to be marathon runner for later on." And you know, I wasn't. I was a solid 10k runner. I was probably one of the best in Australia, but on a world scale, probably not that good. So it was always a lead up to the marathon. And he said, "All you need to do on a Sunday morning, so keep your 10k training going, about 160 k's a week." And on a Sunday morning, instead of doing two hours and six minutes, I used to run at seven-minute miles, which was 18 miles. He said, add two miles on, another 14 minutes. I ran two hours 20 for those Sundays, long runs leading in. 
that was the only thing I did differently. And obviously, I made the adjustment really well. I, you know, I ran to 11 to win that bronze medal, which is, mm. you know, was the fastest debut by an Australian ever. It's since been bettered, but I only ever ran to eight and improved three minutes over my whole career. So to 11 for a debut marathons, you know, back then was a was a outstanding result. So I was always a natural marathon runner, and the 10k training I'd done. We sort of work on this endurance base basis and philosophy to the training, so it prepared me pretty well for the marathon anyway. Yeah, the, you know the success that you actually had at the games, you know, you come away with a, with a medal. Was that the springboard for you to say, "Well, I'm on the world scene now, and I can push forward"? Well, I was surprised to be honest, and what happened was it was it's funny how. You know, I, I never, it's, it must seem strange, I never really thought of it like this, but I, I never really controlled my destiny. I mean, there's a great example of my coach sort of suggesting I should run the marathon. I never really thought about it. And then uh, I then, on the back of my bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games, Athletics Australia pre-selected me to go to the World Championships the next year. I went to Rome and I finished fourth in the world. So my second marathon, I finished fourth in the world. And that got me pre-selected to go to the Olympics. So it was only my third marathon. And I was in 88, I was off to the Seoul Olympics. So it was almost like other people were making the choices. If you had said to me, your first marathon is going to be Com Games and then you're going to run so well there, you're going to be off to the Worlds next year and that's going to set you up for the Olympics, I'm, I'm be going, Tristan, you need to see a doctor. You're crazy. That's not going to happen. <laughs> So I didn't really think, I was just beavering away doing my training. And it's interesting, I think, you know, those opportunities came along as a result of focusing on what I did. I run and just keep it simple, just do your running, let other people, you know, make the big decisions and that for you. If it, I'm at a level, you know, I have conversations now with people where they go, oh, were well, you worried about selection and, you know, did, did Athletics Australia do this? I said, I ran that fast. And ran, ran that well. Selection was never a problem. You know, I think one year they may have even changed the criteria to get me in the team. They wanted me in the team. So when people talk to me about being worried about selection, I say, you just do the running and selection will look after itself. If you run well enough and focus on what you can do, that's the thing you can control. I can't sit at home or ring up selectors and go, you know, I'm not begging, begging you to put me in the team. That's yeah. something I can't control. So just do what you do. And a bit in life, you know, I think people... You know, they, they think about the uncontrollables. If you just look after the things you can control, then all those other things fall into place. Yeah, great advice. Was it the first time and maybe the only time in your career, Steve, that you felt no expectations at all for you to perform? Interestingly, I had some personal expectations, and I'd probably spent a few years saying to, to my friends, family, and the public, running public, that oh, look, it doesn't matter if I don't run well today because I'm eventually going to be a marathon runner. So it was always kind of this this opt-out that, oh, well, if I have a bad run, it doesn't matter. It's all just part of the plan because eventually I'm going to be a marathon runner. I remember getting dropped off out at the stadium, started at Meadowbank Stadium in Edinburgh. I remember getting off the bus and walking into the call room thinking, destiny's hit. I can't, no more excuses. I've actually got to deliver today. You know, I've, I've kept telling everyone I'm going to be a marathon runner. Well, today we're going to see. Yeah. And how did it feel when, you know, you did come in, you get, what, a third place at the time, and mm-hmm. you get to be on the podium on the international stage, Australian anthems playing. It must feel pretty unreal. It, it was unbelievable. And the fortunate thing for me was, whilst I was only third, and normally, you know, you wouldn't get the national anthem, but Deke won, so Rob DeCostello was first, and Lisa Ondiecki also won the women's that day. So we we had a fantastic day. We won the men's and women's, and then this new kid has arrived and, and won a bronze medal. And for me, and I have, a, I have a different perspective. When I hear the national anthem or see the Australian flag, you know, I, have, I, I get quite emotional because for me it's been a direct relationship for me representing my country. And, and when you do that, you see those two things as being far more significant. So... That moment for me was unbelievable, and from that day on, I think it set a path for me. You know, I could have ran a lot of marathons for financial gain, but I most of my career, out of my 22 marathons, I think 12 or 13 of them were running for my country, and they, you know, they don't get paid for that. But for me, it wasn't about payments; it's about putting on the, the Australian singlet, putting it online, and doing the best you possibly can for your country, and being proud of that. Yeah, you know, you just mentioned Robert DeCostella. Back then, because he's about six, about six or seven years older than you, right? 
Um, yeah, I think he just turned 60, which makes me feel... I think he's five and a half years older than me. Well, he's about 20 years older than you then, right? Yeah, that's right. I wish. <laughs> so back then, you know, obviously with competition being so high, what was the relationship like back then for you two? Oh, it was great. It was really good. And it, we roomed together. So, you know, I, yeah. I love telling the story. Four years before uh, there was that great marathon victory of Rob when he um, on the streets of Brisbane when he caught uh, Jim Rickhanger and passed him. I'm watching that at 6.30 in the morning eating breakfast in Ballarat. Four years later, in a short space of time, I am rooming with him about to run the same race as him and it was a, an amazing experience. And the way, you know, he was, he was one of the best marathon runners in the world at the time. The way he dealt with the media and the public and the expectation was just I was just, you know, soaking it all up. I was like a sponge just hanging out with him and seeing how he, he handled all of that and made sure that he, he focused on running well. And it was it was great to have such a close relationship with him um, whilst, you know, and then obviously, you know, I, I, I um, got to the stage where I probably, we were competing against each other and, and that was slightly different, but he was fantastic in allowing me to um, um, learn the ropes along the way. Back in 86, was there the short shorts happening? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Gee, I see a few photos and, um, yeah, they're, they're probably um, better better archive and never to be seen again, I think it's fair to say. And I had hair. We all had hair back then. Even you. All right, guys, just a quick break in today's episode. I just wanted to give you a quick recap of last week's episode with Luke Egan. And here is a quick little recap. You know, uh, my runner-up year against uh, Sonny Garcia, I was—I had a lot of points to make up, and um, and Sonny kind of had a big lead on me the whole time. So I never really got that close that it felt like it was mine to lose. Yeah, it was, you didn't really surf against each other at all. Did no, you? we were number one and number two seed for pretty much half the back end of the year or three quarters of the year, but. I could never gain on Sonny because I'd make the quarters, he'd make the semis. I'd make the semis, he'd make the quarters. So I needed him to lose in the first round and win an event. I think I had to do that and then maybe that halfway again to actually be there right with him on the points. So even though finishing runner-up in the world, it didn't feel like it was mine to lose. So it didn't really affect me too much. Do I wish I won a world title in my career? Absolutely. And do I think about it time to time? Absolutely. But during that time of going through through it, it just never felt like mine to lose. It was it was uh, sorry Sonny's to lose, and and I had a couple of results to get before it was like okay, I'm I'm taking you on for this. Yeah. The year against uh, the year against Andy Irons actually hurt a little more because we we're a little closer. Yeah. I got it to the second last event of the year and. Um, I actually finished third that year because uh, Joel Parkinson had to make the semi-finals at the Pipeline Masters to pass me because yeah. I lost early, and he did. So I was second to Andy Irons for his first world title the whole year. And um, I had a couple of opportunities that got a little closer than what I did to Sonny Garcia. when I. Had- so if you haven't listened to the chat with Luke yet, please go back and check that out. If you haven't heard of Luke before, he's one of our greatest ever surfers, so please Check out his stories, lots of other stories from lots of past and present legends of Australian sports. So check out the whole back catalogue. If you haven't yet, please subscribe for free via iTunes, Overclass, Stitcher, or you can find all the show notes online at www.talkingwithtk.com. Please connect with me, Twitter, Facebook, I'm at TalkingWithTK, or Instagram, I'm at Tristan Cannell. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Days in 86 in both Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games, because now you see a lot of Africans kind of dominating. Back then, what was the dominant nationalities that were coming through? It was a real mix. That That's honest truth. It was, you know, we had, I had great relationship with and running battles with Douglas Wakahuri, but he was probably the first Kenyan to really dominate world marathons. So he, he was um, second at the Olympics, First at the world, those world championships in '87. He won the Commonwealth Games in 1990. So we had some great battles, but it was really only him. And then there was um, a couple of English guys: Steve Jones, Charlie Spedding, a uh, couple of Europeans on the world stage. You know, Italians, um, Spanish, a couple of Spanish guys. 
beat me at the World Championship. So there was a real mix, you know, Americans and, and it, you know, the, the sport was, was thriving and we were pretty good, you know, Australia. You think, you know, if you have Lisa Ondiecki, one of the greatest um, female marathon runners the world's ever seen, silver medalist from 88, Rob. Yeah. voted the best marathon runner of the decade in the 80s and then for me to run off the back of that. So, Australia, we, 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 we were up there. We were in amongst it, that's for sure. Yeah, back in the 80s, Steve, was that your full-time job competing or did you actually have to have a job on the side? No, I was. I did an engineering degree and I worked as an engineer. So I did an yeah. engineering degree here in Ballarat and graduated in 84, worked in 85. Then I went back in 86 and did a diploma of education and I sort of like to tell the story. It sounds like I'm sort of in the dark ages, but I was actually teaching math science at Ballard East High School in 1987 yeah. and 88 when I was fourth at the World Championships and fifth at the Olympics. So I had a full-time job. Well, full-time, I was working a 0.8 load. So I had one day a week off. So the education department were very flexible. And might I say the staff at East High were unbelievable they, the way they covered for me and you know if I had to go to some race you know they'd pick up some classes for me they were really they you know they were personally involved and, and I appreciate they're the things you don't no one ever hears about that stuff you know I'm off doing all this traveling around the world without them I wouldn't have been able to do it and you know I hope you know I hope they were reflected bashed in a bit of the, the success that I had but um and then I remember 1989 I came off the back of those first three marathons pretty successful and I got invited to go to London Marathon and I think I got paid about 50000 and my engineering and teaching wage was about, and I thought, well, if someone wants to pay me same money and I get to travel the yeah. world, I'll do this for a couple of years. And, you know, 11 years later, I was still doing it. So it was a good thing. Yeah, sounds like a good life. In terms of analysing your performance, Steve, like for a footy player, they can just watch an 80-minute tape and they can see the breakdown for the entire thing. In terms of you guys as runners, where maybe the whole event isn't covered, how are you analysing your performance once it's done? Oh, you pretty much know. Sometimes you don't want to analyse it, you want to forget about it. But generally, yeah. you live you live the moment. That's the thing with um, with it being such an individual event. I, I, I could I could recollect most of the um, trials and tribulations of the race. So I'd sit down with my coach maybe my physio manager and went analyse the race a bit. And we we probably do that in two stages. So we do it straight after, so we got the immediate effect and then we'd wait maybe a couple of weeks and just have a look at it in as time had passed just to reflect on the positives and the negatives of it. Interestingly, Tristan, we didn't really dwell on it that much. We'd move on. We'd go because to be honest, most of my marathons were pretty successful. So we'd go, Okay, good. You know, now we need to recover and we need to look forward to what the next opportunity is going to be. Take a bit of the experience on board and say, well, okay, these little minor things we do differently and make sure we implement those in the next event. But I was pretty good on just moving forward and not being too worried about what what's done's done. And, you know, a lot of the training that I did, we modified and changed the training, but it was pretty set and standard training program. So I'll just get back on with the business. Yeah, was there like a World Championships between the Commonwealth Games and then the next Olympic Games at all? There there was. There wasn't early on. Initially when they first started the World Championships and Rob won the World Championships in 83 in Helsinki, they had them every four yeah. years, but then they moved it to every two years after. So they had 83, 87, 91 and then they moved to 93, 95, 97. So it was every two years in the 90s. And that's why I ended up going to, I think I went to six world championships, whereas normally it would only be four. That's why I went to four Commonwealths and four Olympics because they're on a four-year cycle. So, you know, you get one of those every two years, whereas the world championships, actually, they, you know, they're every two years. So I, I went to more world championships than the other two. Where did you find that the competition was hardest? Was it because world championships can include like more than what a couple of people from each nation? Was that the hardest competition? Um, oh, the Olympics is always the hardest competition because everybody's career revolves around Olympic Games, and so the interesting thing was the world. Cha I won a bronze medal at the World Championships in 1997, mm -hmm. and that's probably a week a year. It almost gets to the stage now where we look at World Championships and we'll say, well, post Olympics, 
will be acquired a year, and that's you know that's when I won my bronze medal. So probably the the the, the year before the Olympics, people are working up to perform well at the Olympic Games. So there's an idea, a reflection on how significant the Olympic Games are. That people focus on the worlds a year before, and they're less concerned the year after. So worlds are same competition, but don't have quite the same um, level of um, uh, competition because everyone wants to run their best race at the Olympics. If you only ever ran, if I only ever won one medal, and you know, I could, I'd swap all of my Commonwealths and my world medal for an Olympic medal. When you, you know, you did actually, you know, win a, a, a Commonwealth Games medal, but that first time when you picked up the bronze, and then obviously you go to Seoul in '88. In terms of setting goals and being realistic about how hard the Commonwealth Games was and where you wanted to kind of place at Seoul. How did you kind of weigh all that up? I probably looked at the people around me, so I, I ran off Rob DeCostello. So I'm thinking at Commonwealth Games, he's beat me, I think he beat me by about a minute. So for me, it was to run with him and um, hang on and you know hopefully improve over those couple of years and get a bit closer to him. So... I very much gauge my run on on Rob, and and again, that's that's a sign of me being in a comfortable and realistic environment. I knew that he was a better runner than me, and and you know, around his position was where I wanted to be. So that allowed me to be in a good place and at a good even pace, and not get carried away. As it turns out, I I finished just ahead of Rob, um, but I didn't pass him till about God. Now you're stretching me, probably about thirty. Five or 36k mark, I think, um, as we're approaching the stadium. So, um, you know, we, we, you know, we probably, I think he finished seventh or eighth that day. So that was a nice benchmark for me to guide myself. He's a, he was very experienced, obviously, at 88 and was a nice person to be able to run off. Steve, when you, you just mentioned it, when you see the stadium, how much of a relief is that in your mind when you actually see it? Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, if you're having a good run, there's nothing better than entering the stadium. And, you know, I don't know if people are quite aware that, um, you know, at Olympic Games and those events, you start in the stadium often, then they'll send you out for a couple of hours and you run around the streets and then you come back to the stadium. And normally the Olympic marathon precedes the closing ceremony. So the crowd, it's a full stadium. So there's oh, yeah, always a great reaction. So it's almost like you've... You know, you've you've left. They've seen you. They've got sort of introduced to you, and then they send you out, and you in, you disappear for a while, and then you come back to this um, rousing uh, uh, response when you enter the stadium again. So that is a great feeling. And you know, if you're having a good day and you can take it all in, it's a great moment. If you're struggling a bit, you're just relieved to finally get there. And I tell the story in Barcelona. You know, I, I didn't have such a good Olympics a second time, and I tell people I was struggling out the back, but. The gates were still open and the lights were still on. <laughs> Thank God. You know, you, you, Steve, you just mentioned that it's, it's virtually the last event in the Olympic Games. Yeah. Is it difficult to arrive on, you know, a few days before and then have to go through the opening ceremony, watch all your friends actually compete, and then, what, two weeks later, compete for yourself? Yeah, hell yeah. And, you know, the village is closing down and things are happening. It's really weird that... You know, they um, everyone else is partying. Some I, I remember at one Olympic Games, a couple of my sponsors had already had their final party, so they were finishing their competition, packing up and going home. Well, we hadn't even started. You know, we're we're down in the dining hall and they started to close down. You know, you normally have you know three lines of food, and they're closing two of them down, shutting off sections. Everyone's packing up and going home. People are, are wandering in. I'm, you know, we're going down having breakfast eight o'clock in the morning, getting ready. For the day, people are coming home, been out all night, you know, stuff like that. So it is difficult. But having said that, it there is I like the build up, you know, the the momentum is built to this final event, you know, and the marathon over my career has become, you know, it used to be this sort of crazy event that no one kind of cared about, but over my sort of career it became a very prestigious event. And to have that momentum built to uh, it being the last track and field event was was really that was i really enjoyed that to be honest special thanks to today's sponsor the cabinet house if you're looking to upgrade your bathroom or kitchen it could be run down old or like i said looking to upgrade check out the range at the cabinet house they are led by a close personal friend rodney hawken whose range of styles quality of work and service is second to none 
So check out their range online now at www.thecabinethouse.com.au. You know, just to break down the marathon a little bit and just to give us insights for people that's never done it before, when you're... When you're starting, are you looking for a very fast start? Is it calculated? Like, can you just take us through the strategy involved in the marathon? Sure. So we normally, it's interesting, I never wore a watch, and I tell that to people now. They find that a bit bizarre because now technology, we're all controlled by technology. And, you know, back then I I would try and in training get to know the pace that I needed to run. And what you do in a marathon is you effectively run at very even pace. So um, some like an Olympics is slightly different because that's a race. So you're less conscious of the time. So if it's a bit slower early, you don't get sort of phased about it. But if you go then to something like a city marathon, so something like a London marathon or Gold Coast where you're running, trying to run fast, you basically just slot into the pace. You know, in Berlin when I won there, we ran 302 kilometre pace. I basically would have been running that from the get-go. I think I went through halfway in just over 64 minutes. So it's about you have a, a bundle of energy that you've trained to get your body to be able to use very efficiently, and you want to just spare that. And the best way of sparing that glycogen energy is to run at a very even pace, and you just evenly run along. And the person who wins normally is the one who slows down the least. I know that sounds strange, but everyone thinks, oh, yeah, it was great when you kicked away or you saw that part of the course where you decide you're going to make the break. I was never doing that. I was just not slowing down. And other people were running out of energy and slowing down. And mentally that makes me feel stronger. I'm running away from them. So you just keep running to the finish and hopefully you get there in one piece having not hit the wall and, and spared your glycogen enough to get across the finish line in a high position. So, and we're less conscious about the time at championships because if you told me you win an Olympic Games gold medal in the slowest time in the history of the event, I don't care. It's all about the medal. What's your last two meals, say, the dinner and the brekkie before you actually race? Great question. Really good. And the night before, I mean, we, we have that, the glycogen that we have in our system we need to fuel up on. So we eat pasta for sort of three or four days leading in, pasta, rice or potatoes. So those complex carbohydrates. So on the night before, definitely have a big bowl of pasta. I didn't like having meat because I just didn't feel like that digested as well. So I just have a a pesto or a a tomato sauce. And um, that's basically it, Uh, you know, maybe a a bit of fluid, so maybe a a sports drink or something just to keep my um, electrolytes up. So that's the night before, and that's really the the fuel that's going to fuel you run the next day because you, you'll digest and absorb that overnight. And then on the morning, seriously, a couple of pieces of toast and a cup of tea, that's what I'd have because that's really just to settle the rumble of your, your stomach because you're not going to get any nutritional value out of it because your digestive system closes down once your race starts because all your blood's going to fuel your muscles. So it's really just to settle your stomach down. That's about it. Yeah. I really want to speak to you about just mindfulness and the mental side of things. Mm-hmm. When not only the preparation but also the competition, what sort of things are you doing? Are you trying to purposely shut off everything around you? Can you give us insights into your sort of mental practice? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. In the lead up, I would run parts of the course, especially the last sort of half an hour, so the last sort of um, eight or nine, ten kilometres, just because that's a crucial part. If you're going to make a break or you're away, then you need to be comfortable with that. So the lead up. I may have seen a video or ran the course before, but then in the last few days I would run that last section of the course, so I'd specifically do that. And then using the sort of mental imagery, going to bed of a night thinking about, oh, that part of the course, oh, yeah, that's where that turn is, the drink station at 35, when I get out of there I'm going to go for home. It's all of that sort of positive reinforcement in the lead-up. Then on in the actual race, it's interesting, I... I didn't do it very well, so it's something I learned over my career. Initially, I would be just 100% concentrating, and that's very difficult yeah. to do for a two-hour-plus period. So what I learned over time was to disassociate. So in the early stages, I'd specifically forget about running and have a look around and take in some some of the sights and that sort of stuff and have a bit of a break from the mental 
strain of concentrating for such a long period of time. And then I would click back in and I'd go, righto, okay, now back on with the job. How's my breathing going? How are my legs? Where's the next drink station? What was the pace of the last kilometre, you know, on the lead car clock? What are we up to? Where are we going? And I'd do that quite specifically. So it wasn't a sort of grey area. I'm either on or I'm off. And that was something that really worked well for me. And to think that, you know, you still have to concentrate. People go, well, you know, gee, is there a bit of trash talk? You know, are you having a look around? We're running at 20K an hour. There's no trash talk. We can't breathe. You know, we're running fast. People are real. We're not just jogging along having a holiday out there. We are at a high level straight from the get-go. So, you know, it's a matter of being comfortable with your within your own environment and being aware of what's happening around you, but also very aware of what's happening happening intrinsically, and that's what you've trained and prepared yourself for mentally and physically. Yeah, Steve, did you like having people around you, or did you kind of prefer to be a little bit forward or a little bit back? I preferred to, yeah, probably to be in my own space a bit. That's that's someone. No one's asked me that before. That's an interesting question. I'm not one. I always like to be. A, bit free and not have people really around me too much to be honest so especially at the end yeah because I'm, I'm a head case when i'm in the gym i like no one around me because i'm i don't know it's just something that i have and I, I just thought at that level having people around you might just put you off especially if you're kind of looking at your stride length or you're just trying to focus on yourself people just surrounding you are just kind of yeah, throw you off a little bit i guess yeah and interestingly the marathon the first thing in the marathon is you've got to beat the distance itself so you know i say to people it's possible that i could be the only starter in the olympic marathon and i, I wouldn't win because i wouldn't get to the finish because you know i'd run out of glycogen or something would happen i'd get an injury or something during the race so the first thing you've got to do is overcome the event itself so that in that's a challenge so whilst there are other people around you that you're racing to some degree you've just got to block all that out for a while and so well the first thing you've got to do is get to the finish line so you are a yeah. bit of an individual within a group event. So I probably liked, you know, and I, I was a bit moody before the start of the race. I was that anxious and that expectation. I didn't like having people around me because I had to get my mind. It's, it's you know, it's hard. Running 42K at three-minute Ks, when you, you know you're going to put your body through absolute trauma, that's difficult. So mentally that's very tough. So I'd like to kind of isolate myself before. And then in the race, as I say, disassociate and you have a bit of a chat. But generally you are just all consumed by yourself and your own performance. Yeah, Steve, when you're doing a 42, in terms of training and building up to that, how far would you run as a max distance in training? So never run the distance, although I used to do six weeks out, I would do a, a three-hour run, which – probably was pretty close to the 42k we as i say we never had gps's or couldn't measure it so i just assumed you know if, if i was running it you know i was probably running it around sort of just over four minute k so i would have been somewhere between 40 and 42k so you can't run the marathon distance and people are trying it so there's some changing training techniques now but for us to run the marathon in training is take such toll on your body that you can't do it so I, I would only do that one long, long run six weeks out. But having said that, my standard week was 200 kilometres a week. And on a Sunday, I was running 35k in the morning, two and a half hours, and then going out and running another 10k that afternoon. So for me, I was running 45k in one day, albeit split, and I was spending time. So take about 40 minutes for the 10k, a bit longer. So I was out there three hours combined total on that Sunday, and I would do that religiously every every week. And that's the bread and butter because that builds your endurance to make sure you can cope with that 42 kilometer event. Yeah, Steve, did you ever do any strength work or yoga work? Did you do a lot of massage? How did that can, can you see me? Do, you think, do I look like a person? Mate, I can see your shoulders, they're popping out. <laughs> yeah. and... No, I tell her, we love to joke about, you know, I'm, I've got a dodgy calf now, so I'm doing some rehab strengthening work. But I never, I did a little bit of weight program. My coach, Chris Wardlaw, he, he wasn't a big believer in weights, but he said, oh, look, maybe we'll just try and strengthen you up and give you a bit of running um, power and so I did some weight program but I found it made me tired so I, my performance was just being inhibited by it a little bit so we would do fits and starts of it but to be perfectly honest it wasn't a major component of my training I would probably do a lot more now certainly core stability we, we didn't know 
Pilates wasn't invented, you know, no one did. Yoga was sort of for, you know, for people, you know, that were a bit odd and that sort of stuff. It wasn't as accepted as what it is now. And then all that core stability stuff and weight, we never had any of that. You just go to gym and lift weights, you know. That was kind of what we, we do in, in our day. So we've come a long way in that, and I would certainly incorporate that in my training. And the athletes I coach and advise, you know, they do do that. Yeah, do you do any local comps just to stay active and keep that competition? No, oh, I did. Yeah, I was, you know, I was going well until six months ago. I ran seventy-five minutes at the um, Gold Coast half, but I'd, I'd be running in, you know, cross-country events in Athletics Victoria events down here in Victoria, and I run for Ballarat YCW, the club, and yeah, I turn up at club events. I was, I was actually third in Charles Suffren event out at Lake Burrumbeet, and you know, as a was I was 54 for me to be third in a Ballarat regional centre race was quite remarkable to be honest so it was probably a damning reflection on some of the competition that this old bloke would still be finishing third in a local race but you know for my age I was going pretty well till a couple of months ago and enjoying that I really love that and my training you know I still try to I don't just go for run you know I, I, I I was running every day and doing sessions with the younger guys. So Tuesday we'd do some my fartlek or some kilometre reps and Thursday we'd go down the track and I might jump in and out of some reps with the guys and then race most Saturday, do a park run or a club run. And I love that competitive side. For me, it, you know, it gives meaning to your training. I'm not, I'm not going out running for fitness and for health. I'm going out there to get that competitive buzz that I, I really enjoyed as an athlete. Yeah, is that kind of one of the major factors behind your longevity and reason why you're still running well into your 50s? Um, I think I was pretty aware of my body and I looked after myself. You know, my I've got a, I caught up with my physio who's retired now. I caught up with him for a coffee a couple of days ago and I, you know, I think the other great story in my career people like to talk about in that London Marathon I got invited to in 89, they said, look, you can business class airfare or you can have two economy airfares. I said, oh, I'm not precious. That's fine. I'll have a couple of economy um, flight tickets. And mm. I said, oh, who do you want to take? And, you know, I had my, my, was um, engaged at the time. So will I take my future wife? No. Or will I take my coach or my training people? No, I took my physio. He was that important to me. And um, we had a great relationship. And a lot of time, and I had some injuries early on that people probably weren't aware of. I saw him and he... Yeah. Very quickly, again, this opportunity of me not really making the decision, but him doing, he said, look, you seem to be coming to me after the event. How about I see you a bit more regularly and we get into the prevention? And he travelled with me and that prevention, I had a lot of niggles that never caught me uh, off guard or became a full-blown injury. So I didn't miss a lot of time because I was seeing him a couple of times a week and just getting on top of them, um, you know, before it, it got to the stage of being a full-blown injury. And that was very significant. And most people now, you know, this was back in the 80s. No one really um, had people travelling with them. So I was a bit um, ahead of the curve on that stuff. All right, guys, just a quick break again. Next week on the show, we're going to be going towards the rugby field and we've got former Waratahs and Wallabies back rower, Dean Mum, on the show. Dean's had an incredible life. He's got an incredible story. And here is a quick little snippet from next week's episode. It didn't, I didn't, there was no guarantees about me, whatever. It was just that all I needed to know, there was nothing in my way if I was good enough. And, and luckily, um, things worked out well. But it's, it's really nice to go into a section of your life and have... Nothing to lose, all to gain. It's pretty yeah. good. Well, you work your way up into a Wallabies World Cup berth. Like, how fitting after missing out in 2011, but at the same time, at what stage during that season did you think you might even be a chance to actually go into the World Cup? Never. Yeah? Never. Okay. I, you know, like, I was so excited when I got... I was pumped when I got to play for the Tars again because I didn't think that would happen that season. Because they were in the run up to semis, and you know they had a home semi and things that year, and then uh, and then got put into put into camp in Caloundra, and then just worked. I was super excited to stay that first week. I was sort of nervous, and walking the corridors, there's checks looking, and you just think he's always looking for you to tell you he's not there. Um, Do players get cut like every day? They get cut. That stage was once a week, so we had two weeks up there. So it was like a squad of. Might have been a squad of 45, gets cut to four, um, 37 and then 37 to 30 for the first Tri-Nation series. And then a squad gets widened for the 
pre-World Cup and then he gets nailed for the World Cup. And, you know, and, we, and we were training bloody hard. And I don't know, you know, was, I, was, I was generally terrified the whole time. And then to get my, I, my first test back was in Argentina and Mendoza. Yeah, again, where we played the 21, so yeah. Yeah, that was our tournament. So it was all this just strange little tie-in the whole way through. And um, but I was so excited every one of those and so so scared every other time. And everything was brilliant. And, you know, that was maybe that was one of the things that made a difference in the back end. Is when I went to the UK, I was certain that 33 tests was all I would ever have. And um, when you're away and over there, you realise internationally what the Wallabies jersey is all about yeah. and what it means and what it is what it is an honour what an honour it is to have, have been in it so when you get another one how good so please stay on the lookout for that one the only way not to miss an episode is to subscribe which you can do for free via iTunes Overcast or Stitcher or you can find all the episodes online at www.talkingwithtk.com if you want to get in touch with me, any guest requests or suggestions for the show, please send me an email at tristan at talkingwithtk.com or send me a private message on any of the social media channels. Now back to the show. Steve, what year did you decide not to compete internationally anymore and you didn't want to kind of attack Olympics and the Commonwealth Games anymore? Yeah, so I retired at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and um, it was a great way to finish. That was my only marathon on Australian soil. So I, I ran 22. I still run events now, but I run some marathons occasionally, but I just call them long runs. I, I, I claim in my career I ran 22 marathons and Sydney was the last one. And I tell you, Tristan, you talk about... You know, we started at 4.10 on the Sunday night and out at North Sydney Oval and I remember the, the people up on the balcony, you know, um, I'd never ran on Australian soil. People were yelling our name, you know, Mona, Mona and Troopy and the guys, Rod Dyde, who was the three of us were running. It was unbelievable, that that personal reaction. Yeah, yeah. And then to run, you know, to run out to Homebush and, and I was running through the field at the end, I was coming home with a wet sail and I knew my family, my mum and dad and Tanya and the kids were in the stadium. And to come into that stadium, I, I think I was in 10th spot and the reaction, the crowd, went berserk and seriously mate i will remember that moment for the rest of my life and you work hard and you have you know get a lot of tough moments in training over my career that one moment made all the all the effort and sacrifices worthwhile to be able to finish my career in front of a home crowd on that stadium in sydney on that that sunday night in um, 2000 september i think 2000 was just a great way to finish yeah, when did you actually make the decision? Was it during the race, before the race? Because you got to light the cauldron in Ballarat too, right? Oh, only because Russell Russell Mark was actually chosen, and I wasn't. And uh, he, in his uh, out of, um, I'm not sure, out of respect or out of something for me, he um, invited me up to actually light. So we lit it together. So yeah. I'll never forget Russell for that. He's um, that's you know that's stuff that bonds and friendships that stay with you for the rest of your life. He didn't need to do that, but he um, he wanted to do that. And so I did get to do that. But I'd chosen to – I decided probably about six months before that, and you know, it was right. My body my body was still going well. And in actual fact, I um, – you know, I said that great quote, I think, um, Steve Montegetti, Ballarat, Victoria, Australia, over and out. I actually ran a few international races after that, but that was by accident, purely, truly, um, no word of a lie. I didn't mean to do it. I just got a, things conspired against me to uh, get me to run um, overseas and a couple of other events, but um, that's another story. Yeah, did it make it easier to transition away from sport considering that, you know, at the Sydney Olympics, the corporate money still would have been flowing for a few years after the event? Was that a significant factor in making it easier for you to adjust? I think I didn't realise. I thought I'd be going back to teaching or engineering, but I quickly, I'm not sure, you know, I transitioned out. People were asking me to go to events and commentate and be on, um, you know, I was, I was the chairman of the Victorian Institute of Sport. So, again, these opportunities came along. Someone recognised um, some use for me in other areas so that made the transition a lot easier for me but one thing I will clearly say Tristan is that I retired because I wanted to not because someone tapped me on the shoulder and I have complete I'm completely comfortable that I retired at the right time and it was by my own choice 
and that's a really nice way to do it. So I've never, ever thought about coming out of retirement or unfinished business. I, I was done, closed the door, crossed that finish line and knew, no, I've had a fantastic career and now I'm done and I'll move on to the next phase of my life. And fortunately, that for me has been able to stay involved in the sport that I love. Yeah, now I see that you, you've also got your online thing, you, you're coaching, you've got trainedbychamps.com. Mm-hmm. Where did that idea first come from? Oh, uh, yeah. And kind of, how's your involvement sort of work? We're about to close that down, I think, and we're trying to change into a, maybe a Facebook page. So obviously, you know, I like, yeah. I love, I'm a very social person, I, and it was trying to get exposure to um, a, a wider audience, it's probably fair to say. My time, I love coaching, I love being involved with, distance running but because I travel so much I'm I'm inconsistent and I feel a bit guilty about that so some of the guys I advise and coach here I I don't give them 100% of my time so having the online platform really changes that up allows me to interact and give more of my time remotely to the athletes that I coach so it's a nice medium for me to stay I feel a bit more um my obligations are met a bit more if I can do it online. So that's really the vehicle that I that I use to try and get a bit more exposure. Yeah. Has technology changed the sport much, in your opinion? Well, certainly. I don't know for good or for bad, but, oh, my God, so many athletes now are controlled by their, um, their watches and technology. And, you know, running – marathon running is a pretty simple sport. I mean, there's slight tweaks – I could get you to be a very good marathon runner just by doing the basic training. You just do the same thing every week in, week out for 12 months. You'll get to a certain level. Then the the couple of percent at the end we might need to tweak and it's a bit more individual to you. But I have athletes who just complicate it now. So they'll say, oh, yeah, look, I saw on the internet last night Mo Farah talked about, you know, running upstairs, made the difference or doing weight. I said, well, that's fine. But just 99% of it, Tristan, is just just trust me and just train hard. We'll worry about the Mo Farah fact that when you get to being good, you're not good yet. Don't get comp- don't get start getting carried away with. So so technology can be helpful, especially in, in an online platform where I'm not seeing you every day. You can put it on Strava. I see what you're doing. I get instant feedback. All of those things are a positive, but the disadvantage is that. So much information's out there now, you need a filter to see what's appropriate for you. And I don't think people filter very well. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying I do. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst in the world. We all love this information. Now I get sick, we're on, online, you know, hey, what's going to fix me? What's my cue? What's this thing? What's the latest thing for this sort of stuff? So you've got to really just be careful on putting boundaries around what suits you and, and don't get too carried away with that the minor bits of what is a pretty basic sport. Yeah, let's just get some practical advice then since you've got this coaching cap on at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let's do something simple. Let's say one of your favourite events, the City to Surf. What's that, about 12K? It's 14. For someone that's never 14, and you've got the the record, don't you? Still hold it, yes. I'm minding it until the next person comes along. The legend. You're about to give away all the secrets. Yeah. So you're right. You're, you're training for a 14k race, and let's just say, for example, I'm more of a sprinter than a long distance. So if I was to go for a run, I probably wouldn't run more than 5k's. Mm-hmm. So in terms of just say, let's say I've got two months to work towards this event. What am I doing? Am I doing like a gradual increase of of actual distance, or am I just going to try and run that? distance a lot of times um i think what you would do is firstly you're in sydney so you could go and run over the course so i'd get you the, i'd probably get you to do that straight away so you know what you're in for that'd be a really good start so i think people probably don't understand what they're um getting themselves in for so someone's probably said you'd be a great idea to, to run city to surf so you do that we'll go out Sorry, mate. It's all happening. Yeah, mate. No worries. Go away. So, so what you want to do is, is probably expose yourself to the distance. So I would get you to run it. Now, I'll tell you what. City to Surf's 14K. 
but it's a, it's a, it seems like about 21. So I tell people because of the hills, it's a tough event. It's more like a half marathon than a 14K race. So yeah. I'd be trying to get your mileage up pretty quickly. And the first thing you do in any run like a city to surf is I want you to finish. It doesn't matter how fast you run if you don't finish. So you could go, you know, say, I was leading the race to 5K. Well, that's fine, Tristan. It's 14, mate. What happened? Oh, I had to stop then. Yeah. I was I was done. So you need to just first issue is to get some endurance base so you're comfortable with finishing the distance. Now, if it's 14K, normally I'd say you'd want to get up to like 11 or 12K and then that last 2 or 3K will take care of itself. But because it's such a hard event, I would be thinking you probably need to do a 14 or 15K on the flat and hopefully, I know it's hilly, so I would be getting you to do some hill runs as well so that when you hit the hills on the city to surf, even before Heartbreak Hill, um, you know, you need to expose yourself to those hills. So very specific to the course that you want to run. The other thing that people forget about city to surf is a really interesting thing. There is more downhill than uphill because it starts in the city and finishes at the beach. It's, it's yeah. drops. So people don't do downhill training. So I would get you to not only just run hill repeats, I get you to run over the top of the hill and run down the other side. So you're simulating what your body's going to be going through on the day. So there are a couple. First thing, do some endurance. So pick up. So instead of five car, be trying to get you gradually, maybe, you know, get you up doing sort of um, one or two, 12 or 13 K runs over the period. But the other times just gradually getting up to being eight or nine, 10 kilometer runs being pretty stock standard for you. And then because you are fast, you said you, you've got speed. So I would still incorporate some of that speed in your run so that you, you know, you do it with a, you get a result that you, you working on your strength. If your speed's your strength, well, why not um, use that a little bit? So still incorporate some speed into your session. And that way you're staying quick, but you've got the endurance to make sure you'll make the event. Yeah, you know the city to surf, just staying on that, with all the success you had there, what was it about the course that you loved so much? Oh, it's it's a marathon runner's course. You know, Deke had the record before men. John Farrington, I think, held the record before him, the, the men's record, and the women's record, you know, Lisa Ondiecki and Susie Power, who was a great Australian distance runner, still holds a women's record now. We are all marathon runners, so everyone thinks it's 14K. That's more a track, you know, 5 and 10K runner's course. It's not. It is brutal. So it's a marathon runner's course. So if you had said to Rob DeCostella and Lisa and myself, mark a course out that suits you guys, we can only, we've only got 15K worth of road, where are you going to go? That'd be it. The only thing, we probably wouldn't finish on the steep downhill into Bondi. We might put another uphill in there just to wear those fast blokes out. When's the last time you and Deeks actually had a run together? Uh, we ran together at Gold Coast. Uh, we jumped in the 10K on the Saturday and um, ran in the, in that event up there. So we catch up up there. They've got a bit of a club. There's five males who ran under two hours, 10 for the marathon. Pat Carroll, Lee Troop, Derek Clayton, Rob and myself. And 10 years ago, we all got together and now four of us, Derek, um, Derek Clayton, doesn't um, he sort of uh, chooses not to join us? He's 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 busy doing other things in his life. But the four of us catch up up at the Gold Coast every year, which is terrific. Yeah, a couple of questions just to wrap things up here, Steve. First one. I don't mind a chat, do I, mate? We could go all day. No, I love a chat, mate. I love a yarn. <laughs> Next time we'll have a couple of beers. Yeah, mate. For, first one. Your favourite venue, both internationally and locally here in Australia. Oh, well, the local one's easy, Ballarat's Lake Wendaroo, you know, the, the track's named after me now, but I, I hold the record around there still, and, you know, I was born on one side, live on the other side now, and it's just, you know, it's my spiritual home, and 6K around there, just under 6K, and I, I ran 16.10, and um, that was just a day I was on, and, uh, you know, I had a fantastic run, so... That certainly, from a local perspective, is uh, is my favourite venue. And probably surprisingly, I think the internationally the best venue was uh, I ran a couple of 10k track races at Oslo, the the track meet um, at Bislett Stadium. Now it's eight lanes, might even be ten in the front straight. But back then it was only six lanes when I was running. And the crowd were right on the, the fence, and so you almost felt like they were on the track running with you. So it was a really um, enclosed stadium, and the 10K, they loved their distance running. They would be banging on the um, on the placards on the fence, so there was this fantastic atmosphere, and 
they really knew their distance running, so they were understanding of even this kid from Australia who was running pretty well, they had good respect for. So whilst I never won there, I ran my 10K personal best, and that venue was so intimate and so that the crowd was so knowledgeable that that's probably, for me, internationally, my favourite event, favourite place to run. Yeah, was it was it freezing over there when they did it? No, no, it was in the summer. In fact... I remember okay. warming down. It didn't get dark till I think about mid. It might not have even got dark at all. It was it was one of those, you know, where they have complete twilight. So I'm warming down about twelve o'clock at night. It was broad daylight. Weird. All right, next one. Okay, this is not going to happen, but touch wood, it doesn't anyway. But if you see your house on fire and your family are all safe, your friends are all safe, and you can save one item, Ooh. what would you say? Gee, what would I save? Um, uh, there's one pair of runners that, um, and Nike are not going to like this, but they were the first pair of runners. They were bought from um, Diggershonel Sports, Howard Street Shopping Centre in about 1976. I think they were Captain Lightfoot that... I found at my mum and dad's house. They were the first pair of runners that I ever wore and raced in and had, and they were the start of the journey that's ended up having this um, um, great career that I've had. So they're they're pretty precious. I reckon they might be tucked under the under the singlet as I ran out the door. Yeah. Well, what did you end up doing with your medals? Did you give it to your parents, or did you keep? No, them? they're still here, and um, I, they're. Uh, I think they're in a, a cupboard in in the house in in my office here. And one of the, one of the great things, Tris, and this is um, just you know, I don't want to rave on about a story, but um, I started running. I wasn't a great runner at school, and wasn't destined to be very good. But uh, my next door neighbour, where my mum and dad still live in um, Wendaree, in a suburb of Ballarat, he knocked on my door and invited me out to a running race. Anyway, as you know, you know I went to that. The Commonwealth Games won, a, won that medal and um, went to a couple of more Commonwealth Games, won a gold medal. I got back to Ballarat with that gold medal. First person I went to see, Gary Looker, the guy that knocked on my door and started my career, and I said, mate, this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you. How nice was it for me to be able to go back and thank him for introducing me to the sport that's been so good to me. So you know, that medal means a lot to me, but... It means so much more to those people around me. If you can share that, it's not the medal, you know, it's the effort and the and the personal um, sacrifice that all these people made. They backed me in and, and the result was that medal and that's why it means so much. That's a fantastic story. All right, Steve, final question. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites, okay? Yeah. No only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who does Steve want to get inviting? Um, Bob Dylan. Number one, well, he's not a great conversationalist, but he'd probably play a few tunes for us in the background. Um, <laughs> another Bob, Bob Geldof. Oh, I love my music. People may not realise um, I'm a big fan of music, but Bob Geldof, you know, through music, changed the world. He's had a hard life and, you know, funny bloke and things have happened, but, you know, with that um, Band-Aid stuff, the way he, um, you know, he engaged the world to make a difference, you know, it, that I reckon that's really significant. Um Martina Navratilova, because I admired her as a, as a sports person and, you know, the way she dominated her sport. She probably, you know, she was one when you talk about, you know, doing weight work and revolutionising um, tennis. I think she brought a, a new professionalism to tennis, so uh, I'd really enjoy having her around to um, converse. Yeah, Pat Cash, actually. I had Pat Cash on my latest episode and he mentioned the exact same thing. Really? He right. mentioned that Martina was, yeah, it was one of the real standouts on tour when he was on it in terms of, he said him, her, her and Ivan Lendl, like really set apart in terms of trying things and trying to, you know, innovate, so to say. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's good. And probably, um, and I'm not sure if people will know this one, but um, our first Australian Olympian, uh, Edwin Flack, who went to the 1896 Flack. Games and We've now had continual representation at the Olympic Games, and he was the only Australian there, so he's kind of the, the godfather of um, Australian Olympic movement. So, you know, and, and he was a great story. He's over in London studying, I think, and got into a couple of things. I think he played tennis as well as ran, I think he won the 15, might have won the 18, 15, ran the marathon and won a medal in the tennis, yeah, I think. You haven't had him on, have you, Tristan? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet, but my best mate, he, his name's Justin Flack, and he reckons he's in, he's related to him, but wow. I think he's uh, telling a Swifty. Yeah, well, maybe if I can't have Edwin because he's dead, we'd better get Justin there instead. 
Um, how many is that? Is that four? <laughs> no, or, um, under the table, mate. Yeah, would, uh, that wouldn't be hard. And I think the fifth. This will be. How's this for? How's this for a stat for you? Um, I, I like my Twitter as well. And I looked up. Uh, there's a. There's God on Twitter. Now this is interesting. So God on Twitter's got. I don't know, 10 million followers or something. You know how many followers, who, how many followers, how many God follows, how many people God follows? No one knows one. this. One. Yeah. You know who the one is? Probably the rock. No, this is who I will, this would be my next person to invite, because if God thinks this person's important, now I'm worried because Buddha? God is referring to this person. So this is the person that God goes to, Donald his go-to Trump. person. No, it's worse than that. <laughs> Justin Bieber. Oh, God. He's so keeping an eye on the beeps. Wow. So there you go. So there's Maybe my... that's the next coming of Jesus. Maybe. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Steve, I really appreciate you joining me today. Before I let you leave, mate, I want everyone following Steve. He's pretty active on his social media. So Facebook, you can check him out at Steve Monaghetti. Or Twitter, you can find him at Steve underscore Mona. That's it. Fantastic. I'll have that in the show notes too. Steve, thanks again. You really inspired me through the 80s and 90s when I grew up. So it's been an absolute pleasure and absolute honour to have you on the show, buddy. I've enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, Tristan. Cheers, mate. Guys, I really appreciate you joining me for the chat with Steve Monaghetti. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you could do me a favour, please share it with someone that you think would appreciate it. So maybe a family member or a friend, someone that might be into our long distance running or just love general legends of Australian sports. I really appreciate that if you could do me that quick favor. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. If you've got access to iTunes on your phone or your desktop, please leave me a five-star review. Really helps me grow in the ratings. If you've got an Android, probably the easiest way to access the phone is, sorry, the show is www.talkingwithtk.com. Please send me through any guest requests or suggestions through the show as well at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Always love to hear from people, or if you haven't got access to email, I'm available across all my social media networks. All right, guys, thanks again for tuning into the show. Next Monday, we're going to have former Wallaby and Waratahs back rower Dean Mum on the show. So in the lead-up to the NRL rugby and AFL season, got a number of players across those sports coming on, as well as a couple of huge special guests. I'm going to be bringing on a few international guests as well, just to mix things up from time to time, and I think you'll be really pleased with the people that I've got coming on, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but the the amazing stories and the inspiration will continue. Like I said, really appreciate you joining me on the show and please get in touch. But until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.